I'm still trying to understand the difference between ranks and stops, even though to me they're kind of the same thing. And if you're an organist, you're probably yelling at your <laughs> your iPhone right now what the difference is. But it's a, it's still a lot. Greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. This is episode 54. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host co-producer and my friend Kerr Lockhart. Hello, Kerr. Hi, Ben. Hey, it's beginning to look a lot like December. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. 2022. Uh, it's it's December now, and we've gotten through the year. And uh, want to thank you again for all your work keeping uh, not only me on task, but keeping the podcast coming out. I think we've basically done one a month for this year, which is, I'd say, about a 900% increase over my own productivity level when I was doing this by myself. So uh, really, thanks so much for all you've done. So lately, you've been playing a lot of performances where rather than bringing uh, your mighty imaginary Wurlitzer, you've been wrestling with the instrument that's there, dealing with the equipment that is actually there installed. This is sort of a classic keyboard artist problem. Jazz musicians talk about it, even classical musicians who aren't well-heeled enough to bring their Bosendorfer with them. Or, yeah, yeah, or don't have a deal with Yamaha or Steinway where one of their instruments is provided whenever they perform. Uh, yeah, so you have you have to adapt. Like any, any gigging musician, you show up and, okay, this is what this piano does or doesn't do. But the, it, it becomes an exponential acclimatization, if I may use that word, when you're playing an organ, at least for me, because there are different characteristics of each organ Plus, theater organs and pipe organs are different, and then there are various electric or electronic organs and theater organs that any any given venue may have, and until you sit down at one and get to know it and its qualities and idiosyncrasies, there's a bit of a learning curve. Not to mention the sound of the room itself. The sound of the room, how long is the reverb, if it's a church space... Uh, or in the case of, as we'll hear in a little bit, uh, the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association's Great Hall, which is a huge space. And I uh, hear it has a, a huge organ to match that huge space. Yeah, yeah. I got a chance to play the gigantic pipe organ there. It's a large Robert Hope Jones pipe organ. According to the specs online, there's five manuals, 207 ranks, and 12,200 pipes. Now, uh, a manual in the organ world refers to the keyboard, and ranks is a row of pipes that are to, of a certain sound or type of instrument sound and a certain octave. Think of the term really comes from a reference to soldiers standing in ranks. Yes, yes. If you ever have a chance to go up into the chambers, you'll see... This, this row of, of pipes, if you imagine a pan flute, except six feet long, <laughs> you'll, you'll get to see that. And this was a situation where I had arrived the day before 
to spend some time uh, getting used to the instrument, which I definitely needed. First of all, uh, Ocean Grove, New Jersey is, is really, really nice. I'd never been there, but once uh, Mona and I had gone and done this show, we were telling people about it. Oh, yes, I go there every year, and oh, I'd love it there. Or And so it's a very nice place to be in the summer. But also, I wanted to have some time, because I'd seen photographs of the console. And if you've seen the movie Airplane, and who hasn't, Think of that that gag where Robert Hayes' character gets into the cockpit after assuring everybody he can handle it and looks at the cockpit and there's a panning shot across the controls of the the plane that goes on for (laughs) what feels like a minute or two. And I kind of had that reaction. Now, one of the things uh, that organists know, but most people may not be aware of, is that especially when you have an instrument that has five keyboards plus the pedals, the stop tabs on either side of you, in this case, are labeled by the name assigned to the manual. And from one organ to the next, uh, they may not be named in the same way. So you have to figure out, okay, I just think one, two, three, four, five, okay. And usually somewhere in the middle or near the top is the one that's called the grate, which is where all your fluty sound and all your power, and there's a lot of sound there. And then the other, the other manuals have different sounds assigned to them. And each manual on this particular organ, as is the case with, with a lot of pipe organs, uh, not theater organs, each manual has its own set of stop tabs. And you have to look to your left and to your right and look at all the little stop tabs and figure out what sound and group of sounds goes with which manual. And then remember what that is by the time your eyes go from the stop tabs to the manuals. And then, even if you learn it, uh, then you have the added factor. Once the show begins, I forget sometimes. It's an absolutely gorgeous space with amazing acoustics. Uh, I used a microphone, but you know this is built... Uh, at the turn of the last century, I think, and or maybe longer, and it's it's one of those huge wooden spaces where the acoustics are just excellent. I think it in was a, in, built for sort of Chautauqua kind yeah. of meetings for people yeah, it's, to yeah. give I mean, lectures the, uh, and speeches. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. It's uh, it's this huge, beautiful wooden structure that seats, I think, seven hundred, and Mon is sitting there watching me have this. Ted Stryker reaction <laughs> to the console. I'm not a conservatory trained organist, and I can't just sit down and go, oh, yes, this and this and this, and then turn things on and off and set pistons, and I'm set. It, it takes me a lot longer, and it really took me at least half an hour, 45 minutes of looking and tapping and plunking away and noodling until I really got a handle on things. And also, the stops themselves, the ranks of pipes, have different names. And sometimes it's French, sometimes it's German. And then you have to remember what that word is and what type of sound (laughs) it corresponds to. And again, organists generally know, oh, this is this and this is this. But uh, I'm I'm only just now getting used to seeing, oh, if I see something and it's spelled H-A-U-T-B-O-I-S, oh, I know what kind of a reedy sound that is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, and stuff like that. But like I said, it's a lot of ranks. Did that and, uh, organ uh, have a toy counter at all? No, it doesn't have a... Not a toy counter, not sound effects, but it has tuned percussion. Mm-hmm. 
which I like to use, and I think you'll hear it in, in the recording sample that's that's coming up. So I always got to find, okay, where are the bells? <laughs> Where's the chrysoglot? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if there's a film that has, a, has something with bells, like chimes, okay, does this have chimes? Where is it? How do I find it when I need it? And, and that sort of thing. But eventually, and Mana said she noticed when I was playing, all of a sudden, oh, I think Ben's okay now. <laughs> that sounds like Ben's playing. And there was, this, there was this light bulb moment where I realized, oh, okay, I, I got it. So these sounds are here. These sounds are there. These sounds are here. I can put these here, put these, this other ones here, here and there, and mix and match. And I had my presets set up. And I would start. I started playing. You know, I often when I start when I sit down at an instrument, I'll play the the silent comedy watch party on the or, uh, <laughs> theme on the organ just for the hell of it. So I did get to this moment where I it clicked. It just took me a really long time. I should and, imagine and, it's yeah. also complicated because if you're on a piano or if you're on a familiar instrument that you've played before, you don't have to look for it. Th- you have to be watching the film. So your eyes are got half of the time they're at the screen. And then the added complication of an unfamiliar organ is that you have to use your eyes to To find find stops. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great things about a theater organ is that pretty much they're all laid out the same way. You you find your reeds in the same area on every instrument. The strings are here. The percussion is here. Uh, One organ may have certain stop tabs, yellow where another one would have them in red or white, et cetera, et cetera. But you, you know, I can sit down at, at, at pretty much any any theater pipe organ or digital theater organ, and I'll, I know it's like getting into a rental car. You, you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, oh, the defroster's over here. Oh, that's not the lights. That's the radio, and then you're set. Um, <laughs> but it, this is like getting into a stick shift. On oh, I don't drive a stick. Well, you've got one, sir. <laughs> Uh, okay. The show itself went okay for me. Uh went better for the audience because it's Buster Keaton and it's our hospitality. And what was nice is that, you know, this is their first year uh, at the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association where they've uh, had programming during the summer now that things are, you know, reopening, etc. And uh, what I heard afterwards was uh, the turnout we had was the the highest turnout they had for any event they'd offered all summer. Oh, wonderful. Um, and I said, well, you know, that's Keaton, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and possibly the novelty of what we were doing. There was a lot of people who came that were people I knew and didn't know were coming before the show started. I'm pacing around the, the, the auditorium. We're up on the stage, and I see somebody with a silent comedy watch party t-shirt. <laughs> Waving me, flinging me, waving me down, and say, "Oh, you know, I know you're busy. Uh, I don't want to, but I just want to say hello and say thank you for doing the silent comedy watch party. It got me through the pandemic, and just wanted to thank us for for the lift it gave him. And and uh, standing not too far from him was Mana, and she said, I forget what exactly what she said, but she started saying to him something that." To thanking him and he turns to her he goes are you mana because he recognized her voice and she said yes i said oh can i get he says can i get a selfie with you so it was the the first of a, a number of moments i've had doing in-person shows where people who gotten through the pandemic because of the, the being able to watch the silent comedy watch party and get some laughs uh, have come 
up to any of us uh, and and said hello. Oh, that's um, just great. Yeah, yeah. This clip sounds like fun and sounds like the audience is having fun. Yes, this is uh, from Our Hospitality with Buster Keaton. This is one of those programming things that was very specific. This was their annual Victorian Day at Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association. So they wanted something that fit the Victorian era. So the closest thing I could come, uh, especially thinking of something that would be fun and entertaining, was our hospitality, because the the year it takes place kind of fits. It starts at the beginning of the sequence where Buster is fishing. So you'll hear some light music there. Uh, You'll hear the dam break. Uh, you'll and the big laugh that you hear is the moment when there's that water wall deluge that separates Buster from the guys who are trying to shoot him. So this is from a show I did in the middle of August 2022 at the Great Auditorium in Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, on a massive Robert Hope Jones pipe organ. <laughs> That was a few minutes of Ben's improvised accompaniment to Buster Keaton's Our Hospitality, recorded at the Great Hall of the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association in August 2022. Ben, listening to that clip, I heard something that we've talked about in a couple of episodes, which is rather than sort of just pouring the music on, doing those Chaplin 
Modern Times pauses. Oh, yeah. I heard some stop and go yeah. in there. And it's as if you had listened to yourself. Um, from a, broad, from a <laughs> yeah. podcast earlier this year, said, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna. That's gonna fit here. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've been doing that all along in the last several years, uh, and and I'm trying to do it more. Well, the nice thing about taking a melody and then stretching it and breaking it is the existence of a melody with a certain shape, and mm-hmm. uh, going you know to the left and then back to the right as melodies do sets up a level of expectation for the audience. So it's not just, here's a note, here's a note, here's another note. It's okay, so yeah. there's a melody, and but now there's a break. It's like, and I think I know, I as a listener, what's coming, but now you're building suspense about when it's going to come and whether it's going to sound the way I anticipated. It's a little bit the way songwriters use rhyme. Mm-hmm. You hear a rhyme and now you're going to wait for, in fact, you might even start guessing where it's going, yeah. Yeah, what the, what the rhymed word is going to be, even if you're not doing it consciously, your mind is aiming towards that rhyme. And I think breaking a melody up does the same thing. Your, your, your brain has a direction to go. And I, and I also tried to do the same thing with uh, a, a melodic line where I'm slowing down or speeding up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just stopping and starting, but this, that's something I've noticed in listening to score recordings that Lee Irwin did, mm-hmm. that... Uh, rather than stop or to punctuate the way some other uh, accompanists may may do, um, you can just do the same thing without it being so noticeable by just slowing down and speeding up. Slowing down and speeding up, breathing as opposed to just a, a nonstop uh, wall of music, which is uh, 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 something I try not to do, and I think that it's it's something that's an easy habit to get into that there's this constant wall-to-wall carpet of, of music running throughout and, and there's something that i i've been trying to do as i see a scene is getting ready to wrap up i try to make my way to the end of the phrase and so as soon as i see the fade out begin i can resolve mm-hmm. take a half a second pause and move on to something else to go with the fade into whatever's next. Even if it's a film I haven't seen, if I'm keeping it real simple, no matter what I start with, I can I quickly modulate from major to minor, minor to major, or if I'm doing some little legato line, I can t- have it turn into something that is correct, even if I don't know where it's going. But I'm trying to do this thing where rather than play through the fade out, fade in, from one sequence to the next one, I resolve and stop and then move on. Speaking of adaptation to instruments, you had a severe adaptation to make for a performance of the French Foreign Legion film Under Two Flags. Yes. Directed by, of all people, Todd Browning. That was surprising me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a film that shows that he can direct things that don't have Lon Chaney disfigured and in this <laughs> leading role in them. It's a su- universal super jewel, and I think Browning was one of their main uh, directors, and I guess he was assigned to this picture. Uh, Under Two Flags was released uh, in uh, somewhere in the fall of uh, 1922, and the Everett Theater in Middletown, Delaware, opened on November 9th, 1922, and the picture that opened the place was Under Two Flags. 
it's a beautiful historic theater and because it's there and it's still functioning it's one of those many of the uh, historic movie theaters that fell into uh, hard times or uh, lack of use and was rescued by a community organization that formed a not-for-profit, raised money, etc. Several months ago, someone from the theater had contacted me because they were looking to plan centennial events for the theater, and they wanted to show the film that opened the theater, Under Two Flags, uh, and uh, found me online, and so they booked me, and it fit nicely into my schedule because I wound up booking myself to play the next day at Ursinus College, in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, which is like one stop on the Amtrak away. So uh, the Everett Theater has an old electronic theater organ in it, and that's what I wound up using. Uh, one thing I, I definitely want to mention about the theater, uh, many people uh, listening may actually know the theater but not realize it. If you've seen Dead Poets Society, the, the interior of uh, the Everett Theater is what was used as uh, the boarding school's theater. Oh, where they did, uh, what is it? Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Midsummer Night's Dream. And they have a banner from, they believe it was a prop or set dressing from the film that has the name of the Hayden Hall or something like that, presents a Midsummer Night's Dream, and they have that hanging there. And also, in the auditorium, uh, when Robin Williams passed, they put a black seat cover uh, or a prostrate over the seat where Robin Williams' character sat mm. in the film. Uh, so that's that, that's that's uh, one thing where actually you, some people may actually know what the interior of the the Everett Theater looks like. The projection there is fantastic. They have a pair of uh, 35 millimeter. I think they're centuries that were put in in the early 40s. They're still there. They still work, and they still occasionally they show film. In 35 millimeter, they wow. showed The Godfather in 35. They got a, a Technicolor print of Snow White uh, for something, uh, and and uh, and they have an excellent digital video projection system as well. And the guy there, uh, uh, Michael, uh, who's the projectionist, is an old projectionist who really knows what he's doing. I mean, the, the it's got a red curtain that opens after the main title hits the Yay. screen, and and. What impressed the heck out of me is that he had already watched the video, saw how long the VN title was, and so the curtain closed just in time uh, when when the film ended and the VN hits the screen. And that that's a very special skill because silent films, the end title is usually like four seconds long. Mm. And a curtain takes longer than four seconds to close. So you've got to back time the whole thing. You've got to be watching the counter on the player and know when to start the curtain. And it wasn't until it happened when the film ended, I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> he back-timed the, the end title for the curtain, and, and it's so rare to see that happen. So it was really, uh, it was just, it was really great. Now, the instrument uh, I had to play was a Baldwin Cinema 2. It's an instrument from the 1980s. And Lee Irwin recorded a number of his organ scores for Raymond Rohauer on an instrument like that. I think not all of them were done at the Carnegie Hall Cinema Wurlitzer. And the Kino Ultimate Edition of Three Ages that came out on DVD and Blu-ray in the 2000 aughts has that score on it. If you have that DVD, you can hear some of uh, that. And 
there's a delightful little theme that Lee came up with uh, for Buster. And so I kind of knew what I was getting into before I arrived. I knew it was going to be an electronic theater organ, so nothing was really going to sound like a real organ. This is before sampling ever existed. And what was surprisingly simple to me is that, I guess because I'd been hearing and listened to some of Lee's uh, Keaton scores recorded on an instrument like this, I was already a little familiar with the way this instrument sounded. So... It doesn't have a lot of different instrument sounds. It doesn't have a lot of ranks to it. But I was really surprised at how quickly I I found my way around the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, under Two Flags, which I keep reminding myself to not call Under Two Jags, which is the name of the Stan Laurel spoof of it. It's you know it's a, for, it's a foreign legion theme, but it's it's somewhere out in the Middle East, and so there's a lot of a lot of that there are there's a sheik and there are you know people in what we now call brown face and turbans and beards and stuff like that and as we've talked before uh about when discussing the the tong war sequence in in the cameraman i didn't want to play that you know, a lot of stuff that's in that that's that that scale that people just as, assume is anything arabian that uh, Shahrazadi. Uh, yeah yeah uh huh Uh, but I didn't want to just go too over the top. It's it's the same rule that I usually have. You can see who it is. You don't need to reinforce it with the music necessarily. It's fine for Arabian in, in Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker because you expect it. But this is something else. So uh, in the moments that had you know people dancing or they had a lot of sheiks on camels, I played the moment as opposed to uh, playing something that sounded like it was however authentic or cartoony of that culture is not you know it wasn't really necessary so i when we listen to some of this and and then i can talk a little bit about what happened during the show and how it was received um uh, you had mentioned before we started recording kerr about the the this separation mm-hmm. uh of the sound and i i have the way i've been recording my shows is i have a zoom h2n digital recorder and one of the settings on it is called mid side and it uses three microphones one that points straight out and then two on a left and right side and i've been using that for some of my close mic recordings lately and i find that it it has more separation than the usual xy 90 degree pattern if you know this mic and you know anything about audio that might make sense to you but by placing uh, my Zoom recorder about eight feet away, pointed straight at the back of the the, uh, the organ, that's how you'll hear what what you're hearing. So, and, and you'll see what I was able to do with the, the small variety of different sounds on it. Listen to this clip uh, on your headphones if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no ping pong stuff like from the 19 late 50s, but you'll you'll get to hear 
what, what, what the instrument sounds like. Here's a few minutes from my score for Under Two Flags, recorded live in performance at the historic Everett Theater in Middletown, Delaware. Yours truly at a Baldwin Cinema 2 electronic theater organ. live in performance on November 9th at the historic Everett Theater in Middletown, Delaware. A few minutes from my score for Under Two Flags, uh, playing at Baldwin Cinema 2 Electronic Theater Organ. What was remarkable about this show is, you know, the, the organizers and I were both very aware of the image quality uh, in air quotes uh, of it, but it, it was what's what available and what the organizers of the event really wanted to do is have the people in the room be sitting where people sat a, exactly 100 years ago watching the same movie. And I initially thought, well, I'm going to have to work a little harder because of the image quality and all this stuff to, to help people understand what's going on. I may need to lean in musically a little, little bit. We had, they had a pretty pretty much a full house, 
And this is the first time they've done a silent film. They had not done, you know, five years of Phantom of the Opera and Nosferatu on Halloween. Um, they they might have done one or two before, but I was really wondering what was going to happen because who shows under two flags and in a community where nobody is really that familiar with the experience of going to a silent movie, who's going to show up? And they had a pretty packed house, which really speaks to the kind of community support there is for for the Everett Theater. And it's really just what you could just sense it in the room is at half hour. But I noticed about five minutes in, and this is something it's hard to describe, but anybody who's a film accompanist who's listening will know what I'm talking about, uh, is that you can sense that the audience is, they're clicked in. You know, they're they're connected to the film and uh, wrapped with attention. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I was at the Fall Cinecation in Maslin, Ohio, and I was playing for something. It was a Nell Shipman movie, and it was one of the morning shows, and I, I'd go in and I'd, I uh, volunteered to take the first show of the day. It was me and Philip Carley, the two accompanists, and Philip came in after the film had started, and, and but he said to me afterwards, um, he said something nice about the job I did on, on the score, but he said, I came and said, he said, I, could, I felt the tension in the room, you know, and for me, especially with a, uh, a first-time audience, you always wonder how it's going to go. Um, especially, you know, this is—it's not one week in Steamboat Bill Jr. Uh, it's not Safety Last, where you can pretty much by the second minute in, you know, people's radar mentally has shifted and they're in. But for a first, t- an audience of pretty much all first-timers, a movie they've never heard of, that they've never seen, they don't know anything about it, but. They absolutely were in it, and it was it, you could feel it. Uh, and I kept checking in every once in a while. Uh, sometimes, if if I would have one of those moments where I stopped playing or I'd pause, I could sense it. You know, there, there's this sixth sense you develop as a film accompanist. You can just tell, and it's not just film accompanists. I discovered Mana's friend uh, David Loud, uh, who was. In Merrily We Roll Along with her, and who is a music director and conductor on Broadway and, for many, many years. And let me say, uh, you just published an excellent memoir. So go look for yes, that on Amazon. Yes, called, mm. called Facing the Music, in which I believe he talks about this very facet as a conductor. And I saw him uh, give a talk at the 92nd Street Y. Uh, it was a concert where he read s- segments from the book and uh, musical numbers were also performed. But he talks about uh, facing the stage and looking to the orchestra and looking up at the performance, but also being able to sense out of the back of his head or the back of his neck, he can sense that the audience is with the show and it's on the ride. And uh, so maybe conductors get this as well. But that really, really impressed me about that that show. Uh, people were there to be there for the theater. They had... They had the, uh, there were politicians, uh, the mayor, uh, plaques were presented to the, the head of the theater. It was really quite something. And because it was the film that opened the theater, shown on the 100th anniversary to the day of when the theater opened, you know, the thing I often tell an audience about, we're going to put you in a time machine. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, we're going to bring you back. <laughs> um, but, it, I mean, because... And this is something else I, I was aware of when I would play or watch films at the, the Lincoln Theater in Massillon is that when you're in a historic movie theater, you're aware of the proscenium. 
mm-hmm. uh, w- because of the light coming off the screen. I felt the same thing in the Vardenstjatr in Tromsø, Norway. You're aware of the proscenium around the screen and maybe the walls, and you, out of the corner of your mind, you're aware I'm sitting in this space seeing this movie the same way people did decades ago. But there was a theater organ installed at the Everett when it opened. And the, the, the two chambers on either side of the, of the stage are still there. And so uh, without my bringing my my portable virtual world, sir, and, and, and bringing that in, short of that, it was really awfully close to what happened exactly 100 years prior in that very space. Mm. So it was, it was a really a special night, very uh, successful and uh, I, I look forward to having an opportunity to do something else uh, at the Everett in, in, in the new year. Makes your head spin to think that we can look at entertainment products that are literally 100 years old and not just mm. for antiquarian value, you know, but, well, but to be entertained by them. Well, that's a big part of what the class I teach at Wesleyan is about, and my book, The Silent Film Universe, is all about, which is that because of what's not on screen and which we fill in with our imaginations, which we bring with us from our own human experience, that's what's sort of the the the, uh, uh, the equalizer or the thing that makes it... Uh, something we can still be entertained by, even though the stories we're watching are a hundred years old. The stories are, are basically. Uh, it makes me think of, uh, and when I was in grad school, the one year I was in grad school, I remember going to an event at the Paley Center, which I think was called the Museum of Broadcasting at the time. It was an event for the uh, for your show of shows, and Sid Caesar was there, and I got to go to the reception afterwards, and there was a line of people to ask him questions, and I got on the line, and I asked him a question that probably a lot of people weren't, because I'm, sh- you know, most people ask, what was it like doing this? Did you ever meet Milton Berle, et cetera, et cetera? And I, I was fascinated with, with what works and what has, why things hold up over time, and I asked Sid Caesar, why, why is it you think that your your comedy is held up, you know, for decades and generations. And he said, I, I never did anything topical or political. I always concentrated on the human equation. Mm-hmm. He said, a young guy on a date trying to get his arm around his, his girl is the same, you know, in one after, era after another. It's always, it never changes. And I think that at the core, a lot of the stories in silent films are are, that's what's universal. And that's why I could show the freshmen uh, in South Korea and everybody laughed and, and got all the jokes and went along on the story, on the ride with the story, uh, just like an American audience. But it's the same, uh, it's a young person going off to college and uh, somebody is uh, sick and they can't stitch up your pants or, you know, you're, you know, you're in a, a, a football game and even if they don't have football in South Korea, it's it's a sports match, you know, and I think that that's why, as long as it, it, whatever your comfort level is with a lot of the cultural stuff and gender stuff, et cetera, um, you can still find something of yourself and your own life experience in what the proceedings so that it doesn't matter that it was shot in 1911 or, or 1926 or, or whatever. 
it's almost tragic then that Lois Weber's film Shoes is also still relevant, still relatable, a story of economic and social justice and women's economic roles. A 1916 film that uh, still talks to audience today, and you accompany that. Yeah, yeah. The following day, I I got on a train, went to to Collegeville, Pennsylvania, where Ursinus College is. And uh, Professor Holly Hubbs and Professor Jennifer Flieger have me out uh, every other year. And, of course, there's a bigger gap during COVID. And I'll do something where I meet with a bunch of students and do a little talk and master class on film scoring for in the silent era. And then in the evening, uh, I accompanied Shoes. And actually, what I did, because, the, because Shoes is only about 50 minutes, it's a about a young woman who is trying to make her way in, in the world uh, and looking for employment and struggling to make ends meet, uh, I thought of the Alice Howell comedy, Her Lucky Day, which uh, I pitched to, to, to Jennifer. And I said, uh, just to make the, to fill out this, the show, and also it's another uh, female star, and, and, uh, and I don't, well, well, Alice Howell doesn't get screen credit as director or, or, writer or gag writer uh she definitely was involved and i thought it'd be fun to fill out the program so i we showed that as well jennifer liked the idea and also my idea to close the show with the short since since shoes is a a heavy issue film sometimes the short is good to warm up the audience but just to leave people (laughs) on a lighter note uh we we showed her lucky day which i think is one of my favorites of her real craft two reelers but shoes is a film I show my students every uh, year, and I'll be teaching again at Wesleyan this spring. It's my favorite of the Lois Weber features that I've seen. It's an issue film, but there's so much about the visual storytelling language and how much we are given and we are not given and are asked to identify from our own life experience with what we're seeing on camera where we're not being spoon-fed information about the our lead character's emotional state in intertitles. It's just really, really effective. And if you've seen the film, uh, you'll understand. What I, one, of my, one of my favorite shots in the film is it's a scene where the young woman uh, is walking in the rain, and there's this uh, close-up of her walking. It's just from her, you know, from her calves down in the rain, a tracking shot, and it's on screen for four or five seconds, but it's uh, this detail where we, we we cut into this one detail and then cut back to something else. And we are asked to see these these three things, the, the wide shots and then the insert, and come up with something from it. But it's you think it's 1916, the idea of creating this shot and what took, you know, what went into making it. Uh, it's, and there's the other thing, and this is what you'll hear, is there's a moment where... Our, our lead character played by Mary McLaren, whose performance is extremely understated and subtle. And again, for a 1916 drama, that's not common at all. There is a moment where she is all by herself in her room, and she's in a rooming house with her family. But she's in her room, and she has come to a, a, a point in her her quest for, you know, an, she works in a five and ten, and which I tell my students, it's like the dollar store today, mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of. And, you know, uh, but she's a working class girl. 
her her shoes are worn out. This is this whole thing about it isn't just about the shoes. It's about what you do uh, in order to uh, replace uh, something essential like that. Where her father uh, is isn't getting work, and there's no money for it. Uh, they're not eating well. The whole family their family lives together uh, through a coworker at the at the five and ten. Our lead character ha- has met this young uh, man who's a bit of a dandy, I suppose, and has offered to. And it's never spelled out super clearly in titles, but he's offered to uh, buy her a pair of sh- of shoes if he she would you know dot dot dot. And again. It's all uh, up, up to under, us to figure out. But there's a moment where she has resisted all of this and has to make a decision. And there is, it's it's a couple of minutes of screen time where we just watch her. She doesn't indicate anything. She doesn't, you know, fold her arms and and, and look down at her shoes and tap her finger on her forehead. I mean, it's nothing like that. And yet you can tell what she's thinking, which a lot of that is her performance and Lois Weber's direction, but it's also Lois Weber's decision to just point the camera at her. And maybe there's one or two inserts. Uh, and so what happened to me is I'm playing a big old pipe organ, not as massive as the one in, in Ocean Grove, uh, but it's one with uh, similarly uh, has some more orchestral sounds. Uh, there is a I can't remember what the stop is called, but it's like a glockenspiel or a glock. It's bells, and uh, you'll you'll if you sense another theme, it's that I like to use that every once in a while because it's very effective. So what we're going to hear is, is a few minutes from this. I believe it's the sequence when our protagonist has to th- have this internal monologue about all the things that are going on and make the decision. From what happened to me is I had just <laughs> played this show the night before on this other instrument. Stayed in the hotel, got on a train, got drove, came to here, had lunch, met with the students, and then got acclimated to this organ, which I'd played before, but it's been a while. And I actually didn't really know what kind of a, a sound palette I was going to wind up using for this film. And as soon as it started, I had this visceral reaction where I found myself, uh, instead of having to give myself a note, you can always play less and you're not being paid by the note <laughs> that I found myself playing less and holding things more. I mean, it's not that obvious in the recording, but it is something I, I felt myself uh, as I would play here in my mind. Uh, oh, that's too many notes. That's too much. And and I would just hold on a, on a note or just play or at least play slower. This uh, as a way to help the audience connect with our protagonist because like I said not all of it is spelled out for us in titles what's going on in her mind Mm -hmm. it's up to us to understand and uh, there isn't a way to really uh, uh, in a literal way enforce it with with music but just to help people get up and into it so here leave space for her to think and for them to think with her or to see her right right it's about the audience connecting with our character on screen and helping them fuse with that person so so they understand what's going on. So here's a few minutes from my live performed live score for Shoes, directed by Lois Weber.
live in performance at Bomberger Hall at Ursinus College. Yours truly accompanying Shoes, the 1916 feature-length film directed by Lois Weber and starring Mary McLaren. The instrument is the Hefner Memorial Organ, which was gifted to Ursinus by Mrs. Lydia Hefner. It is an Austin organ, three manuals, 62 ranks, and 72 stops. I'm still trying to understand the difference between ranks and stops, even though to me they're kind of the same thing. And if you're an organist, you're probably yelling at your <laughs> your iPhone right now what the difference is. But it's a, it's still a lot. There's a, there's those bells, and there's there are some sounds on it that are not just the basic tootsie flutsy stuff. Yeah, the uh, work th- was, that's that's on it. The work was really lovely. Uh, the film, yeah. if you're wondering, because it is does sound serious. Um, was very well reviewed and was actually one of Universal's biggest hits that year. It was very successful. It had an, a yeah. very ironic afterlife because someone thought it would be cute in the 1930s to make a 10-minute cut and uh, add a soundtrack that ridiculed the film. And it was released, and I think some other silent films, that was uh, that fate was visited upon in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah, that hap- that happened a lot. And part of the restoration, this is a restoration done by the iFilm Museum uh, and released on home video by Milestone Home Video, is that uh, it only existed in in, in uh, incomplete form. And then this print turned up in, in the iFilm archives with Dutch titles. And there was a restoration done uh, with digital cleanup and, and that sort of thing. And titles were translated back to English uh, from the Dutch titles. And the first time I ever showed it in my class, this is years ago, that's what we licensed and showed, in which had, I think, played some festivals. And then subsequently, cut, uh, Cutting Continuity or something like that turned up in the Universal Archives. And so they were able to go back and remake the titles back into the original text. Uh, but it's it's a great film. It's one where I find that uh, my students in their midterm essay uh, wind up citing a couple of moments from the film in their essays when I ask them to talk about certain aspects of, of the language of silent film. It's just visually very, very, uh, very compelling. And if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. Like I said, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray. And I believe it's also uh, streaming on on the Milestone Films uh, streaming service. And I think, uh, yeah, the score is by Donald, uh, Donald Sosa, and I think it's Donald and his wife, Joanna. So it's, it's available, and it's great, a great film. Ben, in our last podcast, we had some listener questions. And while I don't uh-huh. have any new ones, uh, I do have one that I think is a follow-on from an answer you gave in our last episode that I'd like to know before we go. We talked about the leitmotif style of scoring. And I wonder, now, if you were sitting down uh, to uh, play a 80-, 90-minute film and it has five major characters and uh, maybe a thematic theme, what do you use as your aide de memoir? How do you remember your different (laughs) themes? Do you have a little cheat card of uh, four bars of a tune or well some sometimes i 
I just try really hard to remember uh, by the 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 intervals. In other words, the distance on the keyboard or in the musical scale uh, between one note and the other for the sequence of five or six notes that uh, a melody might be. So this is one of the things I learned from Lee Irwin uh, when I started playing for films about how to construct a melody and how to come up with to create also a a memorable melody uh, something that's that that's not necessarily catchy but uh that isn't just wandering all over the keyboard well and when it reappears uh, reappears the audience will recognize it right ex- exactly so you know uh choosing a, a number of uh, or a sequence of intervals is one thing and then trying to remember it the next time sometimes it's just like oh i really like that i hope i can remember it and i'll make a note as i'm playing it and i'll play it a second time to if it fits for the film, so it sticks in my head. And sometimes I will, because there's just so much music I have to churn out as a way to to come up with something. And it only it's only something that I will know about during the show, and the audience will never have any idea. Is something I came up with when I was I was scoring. I must have scored thirty shorts for the uh, Edison set years and years ago, and I, you know. There's a moment uh, when you're playing for a lot of stuff that you, <laughs> at least I feel like I hit uh, a point of having musical dry heaves, <laughs> where it's like, ah, and Philip Carley and I would talk about this the first few years of Slapstick on before Andrew uh, joined us, and even the, even even after that, it's still, you know, how many shorts, you know, so many comedy shorts, like, on, by the, the end of the second day, I got nothing else, uh, but... I remember having to come up with a score for something called The Wonders of Magnetism. It's a little educational one-reeler made by the Edison Company. And uh, those are hard enough to come up with music for. And I wanted to come up with some kind of a, a theme. And I I came up with a theme that fit a phrase. And this is something else I learned from Lee, just about songwriting in general. And I think you'll probably appreciate this, Kurt, because you're also of the, of the theater and and, 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 and lyric writing in, in dealing with musicals is to create a melody that matches the way you would say the phrase. Mm-hmm. And some of the best uh, lyrics uh, are things, or, or, or songs, are things where the, the melody and the rhythm of, of it and the way it goes up and down matches the way you would say it out loud. So I came up, what did I come up with? I think I came up with Thomas Edison. Yeah, he's a real smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> And I came up with a melody that fit Thomas Edison. Yeah, he's a real smart guy. And and I would bring that around a few times. And I know you'll go find your Edison set and and find it. And you'll and now uh, it's not like it's 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 um it's not like it's the kid brother. And every time you hear me play, which is why I I try not to do obvious things because uh, then oh there's your theme for whatever but who's going to watch the wonders of magnetism but i i've begun doing that so i'll take the name of the of the uh the leading lady or leading man or the name of the film mm-hmm. and and uh come up with a melody uh that fits the rhythm and in the way you would say it and one of the neat things that happened you know in the crowd the movie the crowd at the end John and Mary have that scene where she's about to leave him and he tells her to convinces her to stay and he puts on a record. And it's a song called There's Everything Nice About You. And I wound up using that as a theme because nobody knows the song. Mm-hmm. And then when they put the record on, I play it as written. But but that's a song where the lyric fits uh, the melody. Uh, the, it's There's Something Nice About Everyone, but there's everything nice about you. 
and the that's the way the song the song really sounds like there's something nice about everyone but there's everything nice about you i bring my victrola into my class and i play the record for my students but that's another example cole porter does it every you know all, all the you know, sondheim uh so that's like a mnemonic device that i'll i'll do sometimes I'll t- I'll just take the 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 character's name or the performer's name or the name of the film and use that a, 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 as as if I was creating uh, a theme f- uh, a, th- a theme for them where the chorus was their name mm-hmm. makes that a little easier uh, because I am trying not only to do that but as I mentioned last time uh, inspired by what what Bill Perry was saying about light motifs and trying to do it a little bit more this is a new experiment for me mm-hmm. I usually as I mentioned last time, we'll try to do it less so people aren't w- aware of it. And I'd rather than wonder if I was using light motifs and I was, but they weren't aware of it because the opposite can also be a problem. Then it calls attention to itself. Yes. It becomes a like a Peter and the Wolf kind of thing. But I, I and the other, the other, the other possible downside is that you, the audience becomes aware of the score. Mm hmm. It'll be interesting to see how this experiment plays out over the next year or two. Uh, I don't want people to be super aware of my score, but it and and this is one of the things about doing something in this in a score where you're or the audience is aware of what you're doing and people are aware of the score. It's a weird thing to want, but I'd rather have what happens often to me is that people who've just seen me play for two hours will come up to me and just start talking about the movie. Mm-hmm. I'd rather them get a, a huge bang out of the film than worry about whether they've liked my score or not. And now as we prepare to sign off in place of our usual Keystone Cops theme, We have some seasonal music played by silent film accompanist Ethan Uslan. Thanks much, Ethan, for letting us use this. I've got a lot of other things coming up this month. I'm hunkering down and trying to finish up the the Raymond Griffith project. Uh, Work continues on the Tom Mix uh, restoration and scoring and there's other other things going on. I'm working on yet another draft of the manuscript for my book. But there's a lot to aim forward to in, in, the, in the new year. And among other things, Undercrank Productions uh, will be celebrating the 10th anniversary of its first release in June. Ah. And the Ernie Kovacs book is back on track and it'll be out sometime in the late spring, I think. This has been episode 54 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, presenter, educator, and home video label, and many other hats. Uh, And I'm here, as always, with my co-producer, co-host, my friend, Kurt Lockhart. Thanks for keeping the home fires burning and keeping this uh, podcast going along all year and for helping us share all this information and music with everyone who's been listening. It's fun uh, catching our stride this year, I think. 
Yes, definitely. And and if you listen to the podcast, and I'm assuming you're listening to it now, uh, send us a message. Go to my website, silentfilmmusic.com. We'd love to hear, or, or on the Facebook page we have, and we'll be back with another episode of the Silent Film Music Podcast in the new year. Uh, until then, have a great holiday season. Kerr, uh, have, have a great holiday. You too. Uh, with you and yours, and thank you very much. Uh, and until then... Uh, virtually or in person, I'll see you at the silence. <laughs> <laughs>